Do you ever sort of just meet someone that just seems like a beautiful soul and you don't really know how to articulate or express it or know why, but just get that vibe? Um, that's Emily Rust on this one. I don't know why I opened with that, but um, just seeing like a genuine person that's trying to make a positive impact on the world. So she's an organizational psychologist. I've been on a bit of a tear with interviewing psychologists because I was trying to understand if I was doing an offering around helping businesses or business owners, should I go marketing? Uh, should I help with the mindset component? Should I help with staffing or training the sales team or leadership? Because they're sort of areas that I love and that I'm competent in. Um, so that was part of the motivation is to learn. Uh, but it was, it was really, really just a lovely, lovely journey and an interesting conversation about, you know, what led to her where she is and how she navigated certain personal issues and also what to think about um, sort of an overarching theme, what to think about in your business on how to make it more people led and people focused. Because the two things I've learned in life is that your network is your net worth, like the ability for you to add value to the people in your life, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, whether it's business colleagues, staff, even leaders in the organization, it just, it changes you and it gives you something that money can never buy, which is a form of wealth, contentment, um, safety, connection, as well as wealth is, is just an added bonus. And the second thing, I have no idea. I just made that up, but it sounded good. So let's kick into it. <laughs> All right, well, we've got Emily. And I think um, I think it's good to, to kick off with any podcast, just adding context. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I never, there was a period where I had no intros. And if you just start talking about their life for 30 minutes, and they're like, who's this person? Why are they here? What are they doing? So I think that's a good start. So what do you do? Uh, I guess officially I'm an organizational psychologist. Mm -hmm. um, what I actually do, I guess, is a broad range of things that relate to uh, supporting workplaces with how they support their people and how they get the best out of their, their people and also create the best environments for their people as well. Um, but it also means that I work with people in terms of or individuals, often kind of leaders or executives or um, teams of people to support them to you know engage in a more constructive manner or um, grow themselves professionally or personally. Um, I might, might also perform kind of an HR function for clients or businesses that can't afford to run their own in-house HR kind of hmm. piece. So, yeah, what I do is very broad and every day looks <laughs> very, very different. Um, but, yeah, helping people at work is, I probably think, the crux of it. So, like, what, what made you go broad? Is it kind of like... You, you're just scrapping, you know, like you got to make the most of it. You start this business is doing good and then you just see an opportunity here and you got a skill set and you go there. Like what made you not go narrow? Is it the market doesn't want it? Is it that you're just good at quite a few things and why not use it or like what's what led to that? That's a good question. So I think probably there's a few different things. On a personal level, I guess I like the challenge of having my head in lots of different places, and mm. that might not sound very smart or very efficient because you don't become very specialist at anything. Mm. Um, but I do find myself constantly kind of the learning in what I do is just so invigorating and stimulating and engaging for me. So mm. when I have to do something that's new or different, I mean, we're all winging it to a point, aren't we, in what we're doing, especially day in, day me. out. Especially me. <laughs> I just read your name before I come, and then we're off. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, honestly, we are all winging it. So um, I think the upscaling and the diversity of what I'm interested in, anything to do with helping people be better is really 
um, mm. engaging. I was in a space for the first part, I guess, of my professional career, which was very much, um, you know, when you qualify f- as an organizational psychologist, you generally end up in the p- personality testing or assessment space, psychometric tools. We've mm. all done kind of a personality test for a job probably or as part of a role mm-hmm. um, and in a consultancy basis as well. So I was very much in that space for the first probably 12 or so years of my career. Um, and I enjoyed the mastery that came with that and the diversity of projects that I got to be involved with um, in my work. And then I had a different life experience where I was drawn into a situation with my ex-partner's business where we really were saving it from the brink and, you know, he employed hundreds of people and Hmm. it was very much going down the drain um, with money owed in all sorts of different directions. And I got, I guess, a top-down view of a situation and really it was the two of us who kind of dug it out of the trenches and righted the ship, so to speak. And and I guess after that, I wasn't really satisfied in the same space going Hmm. back um, to where I'd been. So from there, I thought, why not? kind of branch out and do something a little bit different and kind of get involved in different ways at different levels with people. Makes sense. I mean, I'd go mad trying to do personality tests all the time. I don't <laughs> know if that was the role. It's like, here, fill out this questionnaire. Cool. You're yellow, you're red. This is what it's going to help. Like, is there, what was there value in personality? T- is, I guess it's similar to, you know, using um, whether it's love languages or whether it's a framework of how an industry is structured you know you've got these different types of archetypes so it helps people create a systemized approach to to facilitate people at scale i can see that or maybe people don't understand social cues that well so they kind of need a blueprint yes is there benefit with the like what what was that about why organizational psychologists doing that yeah exactly why do we exist it's a funny one i think because um there is skepticism around the use of those tools, mm. and, but there is good science as well and good validity behind them, and it really just depends on the tool that you're using. But like most things in life, it's also who's driving it. Um, you know, a car's only unsafe if the person behind the wheel is driving recklessly. So um, if you've got someone who I think understands the benefits and the limitations of the tool and really what the languaging that you're talking about is all about, um, it's the delivery that's important, the interpretation, and then the application to that person's self and their life as well. Mm. So it, it is useful, I think, in the um, – I mean, I still work with these tools. I still facilitate training in this area. I still um, use them if I'm ever doing development coaching with an executive or a leader. Mm. We do a, a personality assessment generally as part of that process for – I guess a lens or a, an insight into, you know, you think you're brilliant at reading people or you think you rate yourself really highly at reading people, but how does that fare against how other people see themselves in that regard? And so it helps you to understand kind of on a sliding scale where where you sit hmm. in relation to most other people. And sometimes, well, certainly in, in psychology, there's a well-known um, and well-evidenced phenomenon that people generally rate themselves above average at most things so we all think we're better than we actually are generally speaking okay and so I think having that reference point of understanding you know I think I'm probably relatively sociable in nature but there's parts of my personality that are probably quite comfortable in my own time and space and skin um how does that fare against others and therefore I guess what are the strengths and benefits that come with that style, but also what do I need to be really aware of to make sure I'm managing myself well and I'm managing myself alongside others well so that I can leverage that to to the best of my potential rather than um, 
I don't. I guess fly blind in terms of how you operate it. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think as someone that hates organization and systems, um, <laughs> I, I still see immense value in the because you know it's it's scalable, it's teachable, it's something that um, can provide consistent results. It's like there's a book, The E Myth. Um, and it talks it talks about that this person came into a hotel as soon as he came in um, they had his favorite newspaper sitting on the desk mm. um, they had you know little mints thank you so much Dave um, love so glad to have you part of our home oh part of our um, hotel and then as he walks past oh hello Dave so the and yeah. but that and on the surface that sounds like this remarkable, personalization but in actual fact it's a systemized back-end approach that anyone can do mm, mm. you know you kind of want to have be in a position where like we like to think we're special and we've got this um intellectual property or this talent that can't be taught mm. but the you, and in essence you almost want to have a, a franchise in terms of systems and processes mm. where it's repeatable and scalable and anyone off the street could almost do it absolutely um, but anyway, long-winded uh, question coming after this. Uh, so when you when you do the personality test, and we'll mm. move on from this, the application part, like so you talked about, you got these tools, you're using it, and the, the success is determined by the application. So mm. how might, as an individual sees it, use it to interpret it for themselves, or as a leader, help staff if you know their sort of blueprint? Mm. I think the reality with most well-developed and scientific personality assessments is ideally you don't want the person, an untrained person or an uninformed, I guess, person using them on their own because there's so much nuance in terms of how they work and how they've read that you do want that to be facilitated by someone, generally speaking. Um, But from a self-perspective, yeah, I think what you've said in terms of, um, you know, building soft skills or social skills, for example, that can be immensely helpful for, for people in a leadership role, for example, who, you know, are really driving performance but are forgetting the soft stuff as well, um, forgetting the human element of work. And so on that level, I think, as a self-awareness building tool, um, it's vitally, you know, useful and important more often than not. Mm. And then also understanding your own style, your own strengths, your own preferences enables you then to understand I guess the gaps that might arise between how you operate as a leader and how your teams like to operate too so you know almost comparing and contrasting your approach with their approach it helps I think for people to understand the value of diversity you know maybe we're not quite speaking the same language on this but now we've got some understanding as to why you know you're looking at it like this you know you're very conceptual you're very data driven I'm really intuitive and quite strategic. I'm not thinking about the details and the numbers. I just want to drive the situation forward. But you're the person that's essentially kind of my my handbrake or my sense check or my, you know, the fact checker supporting mm. me. So instead of us now conflicting over a slightly different narrative on the situation, we can potentially bounce off each other and collaborate in, in a more constructive manner. Mm. Um, and you get that kind of, I guess, in a team. I mean, we're all talking about team diversity now and how valuable it is from a solutioning innovation problem solving um you know complex situations benefit so much from different viewpoints but the challenge in a workplace particularly and also i guess personally is that unless you're talking properly across those and involving those viewpoints you don't get the value out of it you get conflict and you get dysfunction instead so if you can start to build empathy into my style, your style, your style, here's the value we all bring to the situation and here's how we can kind of assign work tasks 
to each other's strengths, which is massive for well-being and, you know, your own happiness as mm. well, you know, then you don't, you're not getting the value. So you need to make sure that you are finding ways, I guess, to build bridges rather than, um, you know. Burning them down. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you're so strategic. I'm not so strategic. Uh, <laughs> but, but it makes sense. Like, there, there's a few things I took out of that is one – um, I'm still learning that lesson with selling was I used to, so I love training salespeople and leaders um, just as a side gig because it's fun. And um, when I was doing it, um, there's this face-to-face marketing company and I, I was training everyone like, oh yeah, just stack as much value as humanly possible within to the sales talk so that they had the skills to sell mm. and they wouldn't sell mm. because the actual underlying problem was the lack of a belief either in themselves or the product Um or there was some sort of emotional handbrake or they weren't articulating themselves in such a way that would land with different types of individuals. Mm. So that was a good lesson. Um, And the other side you talk about is, you know, you've got these different mental mind maps and trying to navigate that together is quite challenging. And a lot of (laughs) the natural default I judge is that people will get frustrated and disappointed and think as though this handbrake person might be holding it back. Yeah. When in actual fact, they're just at the wrong stage of the idea. Yes. So you've got this innovative person, all these mm. great ideas that are a little bit fragile and they haven't thought of all the detail. Mm. And then the person comes in and says, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. You suck. No, why are you trying to hold me back? Yes. When in actual fact, when the idea was starting to get formed and then they were more comfortable with it, the final piece was if they were going to make um, assessments on things that could go wrong. Right. And being aware of what stage to bring them in and, and being aware of their individual strengths and understanding. Mm. Um, so I've talked a lot, but there was some, you can comment on that. Or I was going to ask you about the the craziness with the ex, not um, the business side of things, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So what, um, how many employees? hundred odd. Uh, a few hundred. A few kind hundred. Of, That's mad. Yeah. When we first, it was a business he had with four other you know, best friends and actually an ex-partner of his as well originally. <laughs> yeah, he's got a sister. <laughs> so messy, isn't it? It's already sounding really complicated. Yep. Um, and yeah, it had grown quite large. It was a hospitality business um, and it was quite a large kind of group of companies and so they had, I don't know, peak about 30-odd sites around the country. Hmm. Um, and then by the time we took it over, I think there were about maybe 14-odd. So each, yeah few hundred people probably at most at the peak of it but we quite quickly whittled it down <laughs> what, what like looking at it now obviously we won't say the name <laughs> seems like that it's part of the approach thus far <laughs> yeah. there wouldn't be too many of those situations huh? there wouldn't be probably too many different businesses out there at the moment either to be honest you could probably you, you could know, work it out I apply the could. story to many situations now but true yeah so what what do you think from an outside perspective slowly led to that issue that could have been prevented mm. if there was an organizational psychologist or someone else or sounds like you know the key decision makers had a potential conflict um but what what do you think led to that the downfall yeah yeah um i think like most situations it's kind of like you know that analogy of the frog in the pot of boiling water oh yeah, yeah 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 slowly yeah. yeah so if the frog leaps into a pot of boiling water he'll quickly leap out of it because it's hot Whereas if they st- if they start in it and slowly um, heats up, they don't re- really notice it's happening. So I think it was a bit like that in the sense that, um, you know, five good friends got together, um, created this 
well, created opportunities for themselves actually um, and they all had very different backgrounds in terms of you know coming out of school and university and they were pretty young when they started the the business hmm. and it really they probably were riding a wave of when hospitality in Auckland in particular was just starting to take off and become you know something that we all valued and talked about and slightly more international in terms of some of the opportunities and options that were out there um, and so they did really well and they were probably the, the golden children of, of Auckland Hospo for a while and they all had ambition, they loved operating the business. They all, each had a slightly different strength or skill set to bring so I think they leveraged that really well in the sense that no one was kind of occupying the same space as one another. Hmm. Um, however, there probably wasn't much government governance and oversight in terms of... Um, strategy you know mm. the growth and they were really investing in growth and you know opportunities were coming at them all over the place you know mm. a landlord had, wants to put something in they're, they're calling them up saying hey can you do something so it was kind of a snowball type effect for them and I think instead of maybe sitting back and being really thoughtful and strategic and measured about how they were applying themselves it was a very opportunistic approach to mm. growth and so every concept was unique which means means kind of building from scratch, and then you know you're talking about systems and scale, and so I guess the back of house operations all ran quite similarly, but the builds from scratch were not just rolling out a franchise, for example. Hmm. So, and this there was also a twin sibling scenario, and there were you know there were very close friendships, and there were some big personalities in the group, and I think <laughs> some people were wanting to drive it forward, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and others. <laughs> you're a politician, eh? Keep going, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just like to be honest, but also not offensive. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, some people were driving it forward. Yeah. And, but I guess they never really knew what the end goal was or at that point in time what they were striving for. And the numbers kept growing. Oh, we want to get to this level and this level and we want to be worth this much. And then, you know, it might be we want to be listed at some point. Mm. Um, and so the, the ambition kept growing and the business was going really well, but it I guess with any hospitality enterprise, the minute the owner steps out of the operation, the whole place changes, you know. Mm. Often people turn up to a restaurant or a bar because there's a familiar face there and it's almost like a, you know, I, I know the owner of that place. It feels really good to mm. turn up on that basis. Um, but if they're not there in it and they're, you know, three steps removed from the actual day-to-day, -day, then things don't work as they possibly should and it's very hard to maintain oversight. So, mm. I think they just kind of had different views, you know, people getting married at different stages, people having children at different points, you know, the, the perspectives started to diverge hmm. um, and then the conflict began. And so instead of coming together and being able to dialogue and get out, outside input to try and support some of that decision making, it was like, oh, that person doesn't agree with us. Off they go. We'll fire them type thing, <laughs> you know. So I think it was just a slow... It died a slow death, pretty much, and huh. it ruined a few friendships in the process, unfortunately. Yeah, I always wanted that, eh? Like, I have a rule. It could be a dumb rule, but I just don't want to work with friends or family. Mm. You know, and I'm obsessive. Like, I love work. Yeah. And if we work together, I'll just talk about work necessarily. So, like, for the greater good of the company, support others to you know communicate and connect and go out and have these fun things but in terms of friendship and business mm. 
it would just be 18 hours a day talking about business with them anytime they're awake. Like it's not, it's not appropriate, but you talked about a few things that are interesting. It's the same problem with even a small business or a large enterprise itself. It's the um, one, the self-awareness piece, but mainly the strategic thinking, Mm. um, working on the business, not in it. Mm. Um, And I think you almost have to force yourself because there's always something Yes. You can find a thousand different things to do every day. Absolutely. But if you don't schedule time to strategically think about the business, mm. you're in trouble. So mm. is there a process um, that you can use to sort of uh, make sure that doesn't happen or in terms of encouraging staff to have clean data in the sense where because, you know, they tre- have trepidation about sharing. Mm. Um, so you're not getting a clear understanding what's happening actually in the organization so is there some things for strategy some tools and approaches i think um you've touched on a good point there in terms of you know staff not feeling like they can share necessarily Mm -hmm. um and it's a big thing in the corporate world at the moment a a big concept psychological safety i don't know if you've heard of that no um essentially um it's come out of teams research from a researcher called amy edmondson And um, it's really taken off in the sense that any kind of progressive enterprise these days is probably touting psychological safety as being really important. It's the idea that everyone across the organization is free to have an opinion, have a voice, speak up, but also make mistakes without fear of being reprimanded or, (laughs) you know, compromised or affected by it. Um, You know, I've made a mistake, I've messed up, really sorry, right let's get on with fixing it and learn our lessons retrospectively what can we do differently next time to avoid it type thing rather than you know i'm too yeah (laughs) i'll do it for you yeah you'd be the i'm too scared to say anything so i'm just (laughs) gonna say nothing yeah (laughs) um so i think that's a big one in terms of engendering that mentality Mm. and that's having a culture that allows people to speak up um and contribute and you know as i was saying before around diversity i think if you aren't using the insights and the ideas and the data i mean everything is a data point really every interaction you have with a customer every piece of information you absorb um, every team interaction that those are all data points that we're using and so if you're not able to share that data with the people at the top who are making strategic decisions for the business then i guess the, the distance between where they're sitting and how they're seeing things and what's actually happening in your business is so far that it's not no longer meaningful so I guess on a strategic basis is one of the things that I think is really important is knowing who you are Hmm. as a business and what you want to achieve. So what's your purpose? I mean, it sounds basic having a mission, vision, purpose, but it's, it's kind of like that's the driving force. So what's your destination? What are you, what are you trying to do with this entity? Because big or small, it's got to serve some kind of function. Hmm. And if you as a leader know that and you can always, go back to that in your strategic decision making I mean as we all know I mean I've just talked to you about the breadth of some of the work that I do and that might seem really opportunistic and not strategic in the slightest (laughs) (laughs) I'm fully aware of that sounds fun that's Um, an important (laughs) but I think if you can always justify what decisions you're taking back to that purpose and that mission does this serve this in some regard Mm. and the people within your organization can see you doing that then they also feel empowered to do that as well so that allows for one not having to have micromanaging kind of oversight over every task and and function that every person's playing Um, so that's one thing and I think 
um, yeah, I guess the opportunistic nature of how we tend to operate is something that often gets in the way. You know, something that makes me feel good in a moment might not be the right thing for the group or the entity. Mm. Um, and so you need people around you who can challenge your thinking. You mm. know, why are you doing what you're doing? And I think that's where potentially that group, on one level, they could challenge, but then it got too hard. Um, and so you need to be self-aware enough and also committed to the cause enough that when someone says, hey, are you sure that's the right thing for you to be doing right now? Or how is this serving us? Or this is quite counter to the values that we've got as an organization. You need to be able to absorb that, take that on board rather than disregard it. So um, I think as an organization structurally, there's a lot you can do to help, you know, the idea of say cascading goals or Hmm. again in modern kind of, business corporate speak you know objectives and key results are a big thing and the idea is that we're striving towards an outcome and the outcome that the business has the purpose that you've set out to achieve there'll be an outcome attached for the ceo for example what are they doing as an individual or within their function to serve that purpose and then like a one of those champagne towers you know where you pour Mm. in the top and it all trickles down and fills the other cup the glasses Mm. um you know everyone needs to have linked goals and objectives where i know what i'm here to do what value am i bringing what purpose am i serving and that really enables i I think the cruise ship to be you know going in the the same direction everyone's working towards the same end even though i'm doing something very different from what you're doing Mm. we're still contributing in a meaningful way to the the mission or the bigger objective so I think having simple sounds it's not simple to actually execute those are really complicated things Mm. I think but you know psychological safety the culture that you've got but also the structures you have in an organization and the fact that you can all challenge each other on the time you're spending and the things that you're doing and is this serving us you know your your goal is going to change my two-year strategy might look very different in two years time to what it does now but you're silly if you're going to be too fixed in that as well because everything evolves so much and so quickly that you can't sit idle for too long either. Isn't it mad? You hire someone to tell them what to do instead of listening. It's like you think about it as a business owner, Mm. dream world, you're doing everything you love and executing on the areas that are your superpower. Mm. And then you're hiring people that are doing their superpower that they love and then you got then you're like oh do this do this i don't know what the fuck to do about what you're doing yeah. you do it i'll listen and 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 then the framework like you're talking about becomes very important is the vision is you know people don't get on a bus if they don't know where it's going yes but the the even further to that is hiring people based on their vision not trying to force them into yours 100% so you got this overarching vision you hire someone you ask them what their dream is what they want Mm. and you're like you know what if they succeed at that it's going to contribute to mine absolutely and they're motivated by them like who's going to come who gives a fuck about your business to be honest like who who cares like it's them and and why would you want to bottleneck it like think about you know you got those 300 staff Mm. and they call me every day hey ryan what should i do like i'll just be on the phone (laughs) like just let them go if they make mistakes don't judge them yeah so where do you think leaders come unstuck or common themes you see in uh, companies that are excelling and companies that are not so much to use your diplomatic uh. (laughs) um 
I guess that's quite a big question. Uh, you know, it could be any number of things in the sense that uh, I think, you know, to your point that you've just made about people don't really care about your business necessarily. No. Um, and I think that's true on a certain level in the sense that you turn up to work each day hoping you're doing a job you love and hoping you're going to feel good doing it and that in return makes you feel good and makes you want to come back the next day. But a lot of people feel like they're stuck in a role that's oh, not yeah. really their own. Mm. Um, and that's where things like personality testing <laughs> <laughs> and good hiring and good leadership awareness around mm. strengths-based hiring and what that does for your business and your people um, and your, your life as a leader is so relevant because it's so much harder to force somebody into a space that they're not fit for or they're not you know, comfortable in mm. than it is to hire someone who naturally has those talents and strengths and is passionate about what they're doing and contributes in a much less um, structured or a much less kind of uh, contorted way. So um, I think, yeah, there's kind of the perspective or the power that leaders have. I think that's something that they forget a lot. Mm. We all get so caught up in the weeds of what we're doing day in, day out. We kind of only see what's right in front of us, generally speaking. And I think there's a huge gap at the moment around you know, many leaders are in roles where they have come out of a technical space that they were excellent in or they excelled in or, you know, on the tools, so to speak, mm. and they've got this technical expertise, but they don't really know then how to apply the people leadership side of what's mm. required in <laughs> yeah, senior yeah. leadership roles. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah. Or any leadership role, really, you know. Yeah. You're not on the tools anymore. You're actually facilitating work through people who are on the to mm. tools now. That's the difference. And so you're actually... Yeah, you're a people leader rather than a technical specialist is kind of a conceptualization I like to think about. And so there's a gap there for, for leaders who think they've come unstuck in the sense that they keep trying to apply uh, trying to apply their technical expertise to doing the work and this is how it gets done and this is how I do it, so this is how I want you to do it. So instead of kind of a trust-based model or a strengths-based model or a growth mindset that they might be able to help their people with, mm. they're too busy micromanaging things about how they see things should be done. But then you <laughs> lose the opportunity for the people there with fresh ideas and fresh thinking who may have just come into that space or be learning more current thinking around that area. Um, you, you lose their voice and mm. their ability to translate what's working and what's not now in the current context. Um, so I think that's an important one is that the leadership skills that are required as leaders progress do change over time and there's not enough support around that, I, I would say. Mm. Um, I think often the strategic purpose of the organisation isn't well articulated um, or even if it is really well articulated. I mean, if you look on most people's websites these days, it'll say what their val values and mission and purpose are. Mm. Um, but how is that actually played out yeah go ask everyone in the stuff yeah what are the values uh yeah what are the behaviors that link to these things so you know in psychology you talk about how those things are operationalized how do those conceptual ideas translate into how people act and treat each other and interact um and i think that gets lost as well the how so it's not necessarily the why hmm. or the what we're doing but the how we're doing it hmm. um and then I think moving forward as the world turns into a kind of a more remote, flexible, empowered, individualistic workplace, 
that's what businesses can leverage is the expertise and the ideas and the thinking that come from people on the ground doing the work. But we're still missing the structures that support that voice to be heard. Mm. And we've still got people sitting in a, a head office in a room somewhere making these decisions and expecting them to, to happen. But <laughs> practically speaking, there's sometimes a disconnect there. Oh, man. <laughs> Practically speaking, there's sometimes a disconnect. <laughs> there. Sorry, is that too waffly? <laughs> no, no, no. You, you're a great communicator. You make great points. It's just we, uh, you're a lot nicer than me. Oh, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> well, yeah, on the podcast so far. Um, and there, there's an important thing in there. Like, you know, that same book I mentioned off here, The Stream Ownership. Um, mm. He's an incredible leader, I think. Um, and one of the things is, so when you're out in the field, so, you know, he's a military leader, he's out in the field, he tells someone, if he was the type of leader that had to lay out everything and tell them exactly how to do it, mm. and they had no involvement in the idea and no responsibility, as soon as the shot is fired and there's no communication and they're out there on their own, yeah. they're going to crumble. Yeah. As opposed to someone where you give the responsibility, yes. you help them part of the idea and you let them go. Because all we're doing here, sitting in our head office, our sp- speculating on all future events so if you're a clairvoyant some sort of savant that can foresee all things mm-hmm. in the future you're an incredible human being you should keep doing what you're doing yeah absolutely um and i'll invest in you let me know your name um <laughs> but if you but allowing those people to take responsibility for the idea mm. and and not vilify them for the mistake absolutely and not subjectively pers- try and guess what's going to happen in the future mm. i feel i'm just ranting at you no no i i, I think you've summed up my long-winded okay <laughs> cool well there you go really nice did i mansplain way. it i don't want to yeah do. it's, a, it's so great we need more mansplaining oh you reckon <laughs> yeah, on air you heard that yeah. <laughs> nah, that's good. um no well, i like it it's, yeah it's, i mean for the person who's actually on the ground firing the shot mm. to actually feel like they've had a say in how that shot was fired or why it was fired um even though that might feel like a lot of pressure for that person it's actually really empowering and it's very engaging for mm. them it's one of the most basic things in terms of kind of engagement and well-being is feeling like you've got some agency over what you're doing. Mm. And I think the old world model where we've come out of kind of a production mentality, I guess, is the original, you know, work 100 years was very much kind of process-based and now mm. it's knowledge-based. You know, now we're trying to think through problems and mm. solve things and we're using new information and new things are arising all the time. So instead of clear structure and process in a template or a rule book, we're asking people to actually think and take ownership for things, but we haven't yet developed the thinking to support that or yeah. the structures to support that. It's true. I think, yeah. Well, we're still in the industrial age, I find, yeah. uh, like in terms of the way businesses are structured. Like cubicles. We will have all these cubicles. If someone's not here, they have social pressure. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, yeah. what's that? Hey, like, here's your here's your regimented life. Like, you think about a lot of people I come across, I talk to them. They they live quite scarcely. They f- they're so fearful, whether it's the economy, inflation, whether it's I've got to do this job to support my family, mm. and then I'll start being happy at 65, but in actual fact, you'll die because you have no purpose. I find that old, older people, oh I've met gosh. a lot of them. They retire and then they're cooked just yes. immediately. They need to have something of meaning. Yes. And I think it's really sad that organizations, it's harder for the leader mm. because they're micromanaging everything. Mm. It's depressing for the workers. Mm. And I, I don't know yep. why, like why, it just, is it just inertia? Why are we, where are we at, Everly? What, what happened? What? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Who, who knows? Mm. Um, 
I think it's that it takes time to to change, to change mindsets and change thinking and change structures to support. And it's very hard, you know, when you've got an institutionalized operation, it's very hard for one person to try and create a different culture. I mean, it's yeah. possible. You often have teams within a bigger structure that have a quite a different culture to what the overall business might look yeah. like. Um, but that's a huge risk that they're taking on is going against the grain. Mm. Um you know, and, and hopefully it's a success story and it's a good pilot in that sense. But often people are doing it without the the mandate or the approval from above. And actually, I think, you know, we're all noticing probably the world and how it's changing and that we're getting a lot more vocal. We're quite fixated on the negative, I think. And um, people are very quick to slam or bring down someone who's made a mistake mm. you know human error the idea of us all being human is kind of going out the window and we're looking to control and explain every single thing and so you know on the one hand we're, we're calling for change in terms of how things work and maybe personal responsibility is an idea that would be really helpful in this kind of the new way things could work and being empowered and being engaged and having a meaningful life but at the same time, we're quite quite scared to take that action. And you, you kind of see it in corporates all the time where, mm. um, you know, someone will try and do something a bit disruptive and see a huge opportunity, perhaps with quite a lot of upside. But it's immediately brought back down by, you know, compliance or communications yeah. or the teams that are responsible for maintaining reputation, for example. So <laughs> PR. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> PR don't get Things get squashed really quickly. And it's, yeah, I think it's kind of like we're at this really interesting point with these tensions that exist in our world. But mm. to, for people to walk the, the uncharted territory is quite a scary thing. Yeah, you got to put your neck out. Yeah. I mean, it, I should show more empathy to those um, those leaders in those positions. Um, and even the staff, because I understand there's a lot, like even just our industry. So I've started a media company and I'm a financial advisor. So the financial advisor component is very restrictive. Like the, right. the things you can't, like all I want to do is just give away every information I humanly can, answer people's questions specifically yeah. to add value to solve it. But it's not, it's, as soon as I go into that territory, I'm on the risk of losing the license mm. just because I'm trying to help. Yes. Um, or even someone wants to come in, they don't want me in an advisor, but they want someone to bounce ideas from. Yes. We have to pioneer it. Darcy Ungaro is a competitor, but he, he's got NZ Everyday Investor. Okay. And um, we're in like this mastermind group where we just roast and support each other. Like, You're doing this shit. Awesome. And what he's doing is he's pioneering it. He, he spent, I don't know, 20 grand, 30 grand talking to lawyers. I don't know how much, but like a lot. Compliance ain't cheap. To try and solve that need in the market. Mm. So I am empathetic and understanding um, of leaders in that position. So what you said before is there's not necessarily the structure or strategy in place to support businesses in going that round. Mm. In an ideal world, if you just like wave your magic wand for those businesses, what would that look like to help incentivize you know, decentralization or personal responsibility or psychological safety mm -hmm. yeah, me right. um yeah i think it i mean it could be really comp we have a tendency as humans i think to really overcook things as well um on the most simple level i think if you took some ideas from psychological safety mm. and applied them more broadly and truly lived them and i don't think it's it's certainly not the cure-all for 
organizational problems um you know there's so many other things that are really critical for a business and for people to be thinking about but if you simply take the idea of um removing the punitive mindset of institutions or senior leadership and creating a more constructive um you know opportunistic on one level but much more a constructive kind of approach to how we put forward ideas think about problems um also safeguard and protect ourselves and manage risk i mean that's always important you don't just want to be going off and trying anything yeah. willy-nilly and hoping that it doesn't ruin something or offend yeah. somebody along the way i need more of that <laughs> but i think if we could all kind of sit back a little bit more and one be a bit more empathetic to realize what role and responsibility we as individuals play in the situation like being complicit in something i think is where something we're all guilty of, you know, sitting down and just taking it because that's the way things oh, are yeah. here. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's really, I mean, it's hard internally and there's an, uh, usually an inner conflict that comes with that, but often it's, it becomes a norm for people. And so I'll just head down and do my work and ignore the things that feel uncomfortable rather than finding an avenue to speak up about it. Mm. And, you know, you do see a lot of disempowering of people within the workplace. Just I'm another number and I'm just another worker bee. Um, yeah, I think if there was a way that organizations could give more of a voice, making sure it was also a constructive one, you know, not <laughs> being offensive. I think that's the flip side of psychological safety is you think you can turn up to work or you think it enables you to turn up to work and say what, what the fuck you want, you know, you, mm. that's not the way it's meant to work. We're still meant to be good human beings. You're still meant to be respectful and kind and empathetic. But you should also be able to say what's really happening in a situation as well. And so if people see that a business needs to evolve or adapt to a changing landscape, but someone's too scared to do that, well, we need to be challenging each other on that. Um, and I think also, you know, this is where people skills come into the mix so much is in this world where we are knowledge workers and things are constantly evolving and no one's safe forever in their, you know, great throne or their head office mm. um we do need to be thinking in an agile manner and we do need to be to be in leveraging the people skills in order to make sure that we're using what humans bring which is you know amazing cognition and communication and the power of collaboration we need to keep harnessing and reinvesting in those pieces so mm. that we can ho hold ourselves to account but also speak up when we need to in a constructive way and that's a really waffly, horrible answer, I'm sure. And it's not tangible in any way. But I do think kind of culture and leadership, it has such a part to play in that. And com being complicit is just, you know, such a, you know. I had to work out what that word was as you talked. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fancy guy. Um, plus, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's the thing I go to is the Mankind Project. It's like... um. The whole goal of it is to help encourage more conscious men. Um, yeah, right. So every Monday we meet, we sit in a circle and have a structure to express emotions, to take accountability and that sort of thing. Mm. And um, one of the pieces is self-accountability. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a stretch, whether it's the week before, a month ago, and we'll say, this is my intention, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And then the other men, if they remember, will say, hey, this is an opportunity to check in to see if any of these men have done this or not done it. Mm. And the important distinction with it is it's not a like, why haven't you done that? It's a support thing. Yeah. 
So the owner, the individual is the person that's holding themselves to account. You're merely just the messenger. Mm. And I think that's an important distinction, you know, where often accountability turns to blame. It does. Yeah. And I know you, you've used the word waffle. Believe in yourself. You don't, you're, you're saying <laughs> some great things. But is there is there some tools um, or – well, what about you? Do you have a process on how you um, – make it more encouraging or easier for you to be expressive of people's this your disappointment or um how you develop more self-awareness or empathy like what's your process and i push this button this fyi because the camera changes over for 30 minutes okay that's why i'm not ignoring you but yeah, yeah what, what, do, what do you do in terms of your own personal life in terms of myself mm. how i kind of live to those values that i'm sitting here touting yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a good question um yeah, I guess I think it all starts with the types of relationships you create. Um, you know, I would my life is, I guess, big and messy in some regards. I have <laughs> three children, yeah. three stepchildren, yeah. a, a new partner, an ex-partner, and a, an enormous kind of friend and family group who I'm really close to. Hmm. Um and I don't think there's probably a single person in, you know, my life who wouldn't say that I'm not honest about how I feel or what I think hmm. um, on a daily basis. Just a diplomatic version. <laughs> sometimes on Somet podcasts. <laughs> sometimes I say some really crass, shocking things. Oh dear. Well, let's get that out. Of <laughs> no. And make some really bad jokes, inappropriate okay. jokes. You're in terms, safe hands. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I think I think there's a balance from my perspective, and I think this is again the human thing that comes into it, is the more kind of self-important you feel, the more self-absorbed you feel, the more insecure you feel, the more of a victim you feel. Those are all things I think that take the lens away from others and put them on yourself, or make you feel like there's something to prove, or. Um, I don't know, I guess it's the mindset that you approach life with. Like I live every day thinking, God, I'm so lucky to be on this planet, mm -hmm. you know. I am so grateful to be alive today. And I do that because I've lost really important, amazing people that are close to me at different times from when I was about 17 onwards. Um, and, you know, I've been through some stuff that well, probably by some people's standards doesn't look that bad but to live through those things and feel like you know the life you've built or the life you love or whatever is about to fly out the window or the the person you thought you were being effective at kind of achieving something or making something better or making it work you failed hmm. you know um you know those are all quite big moments I guess where you reassess how much control you have like I really genuinely feel like we're all ants on this planet like, <laughs> life has no more meaning than that you know uh, yeah, we're, okay all we're right. actually just <laughs> philosophical I like it we're off seriously you know I wake up thinking how can I make my life better today how can I be a better person to make the people around me better people and happier people how can I contribute and I guess you know on the basis of my kids how can I think forward to what they're going to need to set them up for a good day how do I give them those things so that they're the best people they can possibly be and they've got opportunities coming and they're being successful and they've got good friendships and they're thriving 
Um, and that gives me meaning and purpose. And so it's mm. something outside myself and it's something based on doing something positive for the people that I love. Um, and I guess having relationships where I probably lead with slightly raw information. I tend to <laughs> probably give too much information in lots of ways, but okay. I think getting people to let their guards down is really, really important. Yeah. And if you've led with something bad that's happened to you or, you know, an inappropriate physical bodily function or something that's going on for you <laughs> that you just day. just say fart in a long way? <laughs> Actually, I was meaning more than fart, but... Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, like automatically you've taken some of the barriers down between the two of you and that invites mm. people to also give back on that basis and reveal something personal, but also never judging people for it because I think empathy is something we all lack and is something we can all do better at, including myself, is it's easy to think you know how someone else feels and what they're going through, but to actually walk in their shoes and live their life is something quite different. Um yeah, so I think the way I kind of view life is not take things too seriously. Laugh instead of cry as much as possible, but we need to cry. You just go for it. Yeah, McLeod's daughter's got me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This random scene. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Like the ads that you watch, it's like, oh, God, uh, there's something going on for me. I don't know what it is yet, but <laughs> I'm crying at something ridiculous. Thailand. Yeah. Life insurance ads yeah. every time. Oh, right. Just Life insurance. Yeah, well, they, they tell, like, it's the most, it's hard to sell insurance because people don't think they need it until they need it. <laughs> but it was just like this, the, like, story of this father that was deaf and he cared about his daughter yeah. and she was ashamed of him because he was different. Yeah. And then she, like, passes away and he's running around asking for help, but he can't talk. Right. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. And, it's a, and then it says life heavy. insurance, huh? That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just thought I'd bring you down because you've been laughing <laughs> too much. You said it's good to cry. So. It is good to cry. I <laughs> think also you need to have people around you who you can cry in front of. Oh, yeah, that's and a good with. point. You know, we forget to do that sometimes. Well, I see um, most of the issues I see in others and myself, like, you know, the, the challenges they navigate, not feeling good enough, mm. not feeling worthy. Mm stem from experiences with others mm -hmm. and the solution is to re-experience those experiences with others so in a sense you know you're expressing small incremental aspects of your vulnerability mm. they're being received in a favorable way mm -hmm. you're reparenting your mind you're making new pathways and then you're developing more effectively mm. the challenge i had was I, I i would meditate as a means to achieve a state mm. so i'd actually dissociate yeah right which could, I could execute, but right. it wasn't helpful. So right. now I'm more of just observing my emotional state and trying to be authentic to it. Yes. But also being conscious that others can't receive it at times. Yeah. So you don't, you know, try and bench 200 kilos on your first day, tell everyone, you know, when I was four years old, my mum didn't hug me. You know, you don't just like open on the gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and I think that's a really good point you raise is that, you have to be really cognizant and self-aware and also situationally aware enough. I guess it's emotional intelligence, isn't it? Is sometimes mm. you've got a purpose you're trying to serve and maybe you're trying to help someone altruistically, but they're not ready for it. They don't want it. They're, they're not, not there to receive it right now. And that's tricky when you can see someone going through kind of a one of those slumps in life or crashing and burning, whether it's quickly or slowly. And all you want to do is make a difference for them. But actually... I guess it's one of the things I've been learning is 
you can't fix everything and you can't control everything. And sometimes your input is not what's needed right now. Yeah. Um, so the best thing you can do is just tell them you love them and sit back and and be there for when they do crash or when they do call you or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one because I think it's easy to think you're being altruistic, but very rarely are we genuinely being like mm, that. Quite mm. often, you know, you might be trying to achieve something that makes you feel good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point you raise it. Yeah, I think, I think you got to ask yourself, are you doing it for them or are you doing it for yourself? Because... Yeah. You know, like if you're if you're having a strong emotional experience hearing someone else's and you feel a desire to do it and if it's not received in a certain way or not able to help to the degree you're happy with, mm. it's impacting you. It's their problem. Yes. And then now suddenly you're all involved. Yes. When in actual fact, as you say, like this is an important lesson for me is whether whether it's someone I'm dating, whether it's family members, my my only there's a bad sequence of things i didn't date any cousins just FYI. okay yeah i didn't need to say that but um that my only job is to to show unconditional love yeah and to communicate my boundaries mm. and stay true to those whatever they do they do because yeah i can't diso i can't that's not a good word I, it's hard for me not to be so emotionally invested in their situation to do what's needed for the situation mm. Um, and taking it personally, do you find that a tricky yeah? I'd cry. I just someone cry. I cry. I've worked on it. Yeah. But yeah, I just added to the problem. Yeah, I think we all have a slight tendency to take things quite personally, don't we? When you know, I think that's a huge thing that I see, and something that you do need to keep working on is when someone's having a bad day or a tough moment, or you walk down the street and you say hi to someone, and they give you a kind of a blank stare in return. It's not you. about you. It's mm. actually not about you. It's about them and whatever emotional state they're in. And maybe they haven't seen you. Maybe they didn't hear you. Mm. You know, maybe your mind's whizzing through something and you just are challenge, you know, struggling to be present, I guess. But not taking those things personally sometimes mm. can, be, if, if you're a kind of a emotionally connected person, it can be really difficult. Um, Did yes, you I have think that? Was that your chance? Because I call psychologists wounded healers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh gosh. Am I wounded? Um. I think we're all kind of slightly wounded, aren't no, we? No. Perfect. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm wounded too. Um. Yes. I think that's my thing. Is I take on probably more than I should with mm. people, and I feel like I need to give more than I need to. Mm. And I constantly beat myself up about not calling a friend who I haven't spoken to for too long, or not being there in a crisis when someone needs me, or. Um, you know, if I know a friend requires more of my time and energy than others, you know, have I called them frequently enough or are they calling me all the time and I'm actually never instigating the first phone call? I mean, silly little things like that are the things that make me feel bad and give mm. me kind of that inner turmoil. But it's a constant battle, I guess, or a, a learning to just keep rationalizing, you know, we're all busy. We've all got lives. They understand that. I've got this family situation that sometimes is quite demanding. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's it's just being reasonable and not letting your emotional, you know, you're talking about these emotional patterns, um, not catastrophizing and not allowing, um, amplifying those experiences when you actually should be trying to attenuate them and kind of bring things back and retrain your thinking or your thought processes to be a bit more reasonable. And we're all guilty of it, you know, catastrophizing or over cooking something which just doesn't need to be like that 
Yeah, I want to say most because absolutes I find don't really. They tie me to a particular identity. Yes. And and it's quite emotionally driven to yeah. say you know all, even yes. though it could be all. Yes. Because I want to say like everyone, everyone has the same emotions for different reasons. Right. But I I might want to say most. Yes. But it appears to be true. It's like I think that's the. I think it's important, you know. So you get this divide of between rich and poor, or between mm-hmm. intensely traumatic experiences mm-hmm. and not so traumatic experiences, or mm-hmm. leadership position, not leadership position, and. I think it's important that when when you get to a certain point, whether it's success or failure or depression or anxiety, it becomes your default. Mm. You know, you get mm-hmm. rooted in the e- equilibrium and resisting that um, becomes quite challenging, that mm. change that you talked about. Yes. So I think it's important, even though someone might be successful or even though someone might have everything you want, you know, they've got the happy family, got all this stuff and, and you want to project that it's easier, but in actual fact this paradise turns to dirt mm-hmm. like you know yeah and so you and and it works with dopamine too like even yes. if you're an addict you're taking drugs all the time your dopamine window narrows so your ability to experience pleasure narrows yeah so in essence you you need to to like someone that could be successful and you're envious of their life you wouldn't want their life the amount of people i see crying into their gold-plated wheat picks just so mad. true so true have you done much um, reading or learning about kind of positive psychology? I've heard of it. I yeah. don't. Yeah, it I've resisted. Sounded a bit too <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, like I, as long as as long as it's paying home. Like I understand that you're what you think you become. So if I keep remunerating on negative thoughts, it's not going to be healthy. If mm. I can change it more positive, but if I'm walking around and like my family's getting destroyed and killed and murdered around me and all the worst things are happening, I'm like, stay positive. Yeah. Right. Mm. yeah. But yeah, go on. Sit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always a bit nervous talking about it because I think we all have an assumption that, you know, it is about just finding kind of pleasure state happiness all the time and walking mm. along with a smile on our faces, which as you say is, not always possible um and it is uh, such a paradox that you know often it's the people who are most privileged and have the best lives you know by most other people's standards that are the most miserable as well Mm. um it's i guess the emptiness that comes with that but i really enjoy thinking about positive psychology in the sense that i think it's a really empowering concept for people to take on so i guess without going too much into detail it's kind of born from it's the counterpoint that came from psychology very much you know 50 years ago or even 30 years ago was all about diagnosing illness and ill health and Mm. and mental ill health essentially so it was about problems and so more recently in the last 20 odd years there's been a group of researchers martin seligman is one of them who kind of leads it and more originally did and you know, they're thinking about, okay, but what about for the people that don't have diagnosable mental illness or psychological ill health? What about how we better our lives? And so it's not really about necessarily seeking happiness, although happiness and life satisfaction are really big um, tools that we use to measure or things that are aspirational, I guess. Um, But it's really about trying to figure out what from the literature and the research helps us to get to a state of happiness and life satisfaction. So if you've got all the things you ever wanted, are you happy or not? And really what it boils down to is there's kind of like these three parts to 
or three different lives we can live that contribute to our overall well-being fundamentally but also happiness and so this kind of pleasure state is kind of this hedonistic life that we're always looking for and you're talking about dopamine it's like those pleasure hits those dopamine hits we get when we eat chocolate or um you know people taking drugs or enjoying kind of an interaction with people or having sex for example you know they all give us this pleasure center release of dopamine but with what you're saying is that we get habituated to that really quickly so when you eat the Mm. first bite of your chocolate cake it's amazing if you really want it and then by like the 10th mouthful it's no longer that pleasurable or Mm. you know if you have chocolate cake every day it loses its luster really quickly so that's the short-term thing that has absolutely no impact for like a momentary thing like winning lotto you'll be happy for six months but you'll likely be as unhappy as you were pre-lotto 12 months later Mm. so things like that it's quite interesting to see kind of the reference point that we give our happiness and when we get there it's not that meaningful but the things that really do make a difference are having a you know purpose and being engaged in what we're doing finding flow feeling like we are using our strengths and contributing meaningfully and this is where kind of good work design and you know the right people in the right jobs makes a real difference and then also a meaningful life where we're contributing to something bigger than ourselves those are the things that really make a difference to your general happiness and life satisfaction so i feel like humans are so dedicated to the hedonistic stuff Mm. we're forgetting about the meaning you know that really we derive pleasure from and and money doesn't give us all those answers and neither does you know jets and boats and big houses doesn't it (laughs) financial plan i I mean yeah i mean that helps to a point there's a point where that is necessary and then beyond that yeah no i agree oh yeah i i I mean the i always wished i could give people everything they ever wanted to realize how much they already had like they yes it's not like, absolutely you're not gonna get in your yacht now you're fixed you know there's that quote wherever you go there you are yes um and i think that's an important consideration around happiness as well happiness isn't a goal happiness is a contrast you know you, you like you can't be perpetually happy it's like being full like if you had food absolutely and you're full all the time and you absolutely. never had hunger like what even is happiness yes um not to say you should just you know freaking out have poor emotional regulations poor relationships and no purpose but th- those are the things that bring you meaning and for me being that little ant mm. <laughs> with the meaningless existence which i agree with like i don't think there's any inherent meaning um having a reason to suffer having a reason to strive to navigate through the uncertainty mm. and having a framework either values or habits i hold myself accountable to yeah. and having meaningful connections i'm good if i lose everything go on a park bench done it before mm. slipped on park bench <laughs> oh and <laughs> lived in a tent for a year and a half ten dollars a week on food oh, wow. happy as fuck yeah don't matter yeah but if i don't have purpose if i don't have meaningful connections and i don't have a consistent framework to add order to the chaos yeah it's it's a tough life absolutely but absolutely. before you go down any tangent we're on the um we're on the hour mark okay and so if who who would you ideally want to help with your broad range of talent oh my gosh and if they hear this and they want you um, to find you how do they find so i'd like to help any person or business who's keen to be better in life or make things better for themselves or the people around them i'm not a clinical psychologist but that's certainly my purpose is how you know amongst the kind of ant mentality (laughs) help the other ants. we still have a responsibility to cause as little harm as possible and be the best people we can possibly be so 
um yeah I work with businesses around culture engagement kind of understanding how best to find the right people to fit with those frameworks or to build into their systems those frameworks that we've been talking about um and individuals I'm not a clinical psych so I'm not a counselor I'm not a therapist but in terms of professional growth and development and also ebbing into personal if you know if you've got questions if you want some guidance if you need someone to hold you to account and give you some ideas yeah I'm happy to help um and to find me, uh, you can visit my website, which is www.lifework, L-I-F-E-W-O-R-K dot group, um, or flick me an email, which is emily at lifework dot group. Um, yeah. I always love the sales pitches. I just love yeah. to see. Because <laughs> you, you, either, either it's person comes in the podcast and the whole podcast is a pitch and i got to stop them in the middle. Yeah, right. Like, hey, look. Or, you know, just, you know, feeling deserving of asking is also another thing that I see as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think you've added immense value and thank you for coming on. Thank and you. Um, your links are going to be on there, your email. Yes. Because I've recorded it so I don't have to remember it. Amazing. And uh, we're done. <laughs> <laughs>